0: morning as we look into your word and we think about some of the characteristics in the life of your servant andrew we ask that you would enlighten us with your word that you would teach us that you would speak to us that you would correct us rebuke us challenge us equip us to be your ambassadors to be your representatives to be stewards of your grace to be the salt and the light that you have called us the christians to be at this moment in history, on this coastline. And so, we want your Holy Spirit to teach us. You said that the Holy Spirit is the teacher of all things. You come, Spirit, you teach us. You speak to our hearts. You know how to minister to us. I ask that you would use me for your glory, and your glory alone. Further your kingdom by what goes on here this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Andrew was, of course, Simon Peter's brother. And Andrew's name means manly. Don't you wish that was your name? It means manly. Well, no, not the women. The (laughs) women don't wish that was their name. I'm talking to the men. Don't you wish your name meant manly or manliness? Andrew's name, Simon Peter's brother, it meant manly. And we know from historical accounts that Andrew ended his life having been tied to a cross and crucified. I said tied to a cross and not nailed to a cross because the Roman governor who demanded his execution requested that he be tied to the cross rather than nailed to prolong his suffering and his misery in his time there on the cross. Historical accounts tell us that He hung there for two days. 48 hours He was tied to that cross. And all the while, we read, He was exhorting people to be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. All the while that He was hung there, He was telling the people that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which men can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. It was that undeniable passion for evangelism, leading others to Christ, that brought Andrew to that place of execution. You see, he was there in the southern region of Greece, and he had the opportunity to lead that Roman governor's wife to the Lord. And she was born again. She was converted. She was transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. She was given a brand new identity in Christ. A brand new nature in Christ. She was given a hope and a future and the promise of eternal life. And that's a good thing. But the Roman governor didn't like it. And so he demanded of his wife that she would recant of her Christianity. And she said, I can't recant. I will not. And the Roman governor, in his rage and in his anger, ordered that Andrew, the manly one, be crucified. And he gave his life literally for the sake that others might have eternal life. You see, Andrew was one who took Jesus at his word. When Jesus had told the disciples there in the Sermon on the Mount that they were to be salt and to be light, well, gee whiz, Andrew just believed it. He took it as the actual Word of God. He was a disciple. He acted upon that. When He was given the Great Commission before Jesus ascended unto heaven, He heard that Great Commission to go and make disciples, and He took it literally. He made the teachings of Jesus, the rule of His conduct, and He went out into the world preaching the Gospel and making disciples. From his first encounter with Jesus until his dying breath, Andrew led people to Jesus. And that is the defining mark of his life. That is what distinguishes Andrew. That's what sets him apart from other characters in the Bible, is he had the reputation of bringing individuals to Christ. And that's about all we know from Scripture concerning him. Except for the times where the 12 disciples are all mentioned together, Andrew is only mentioned in the New Testament nine times in total. And most of those times, he's just mentioned in passing. He's usually just mentioned as being Peter's brother. You know what that is, some of you. But what we don't see in Scripture is what we will see in the future. And that is when we stand at the bema seat of Jesus Christ. When we stand at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. That moment soon to come in history where all the redeemed will stand before Christ and they will be rewarded according to their faithfulness. We may not open our Bible and see the name of Andrew too much, but we will hear the name of Andrew loudly on that day when his servants, God's servants, are rewarded for their faithfulness. You see the first person that Andrew ever led to Christ Jesus was his brother Peter. Now Peter, you know about Peter. We talked a lot about Peter and we love talking about Peter before Pentecost because it reminds us of ourselves, but we really love to talk about Peter after Pentecost, after the day that the Holy Spirit came upon the church because it reminds us of what we ought to be, what we want to be, that we want to be Holy Spirit-empowered preachers of the good news of Jesus Christ. And big-mouth Peter went to be the golden-throat preacher after Pentecost. And so Andrew led him to the Lord. The Lord raised him up. Pentecost came. The Holy Spirit came upon the church. And it was Peter that preached that first sermon, having been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're told that as Peter preached, 3,000 gave their lives to the Lord that day in Jerusalem. And so, at the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, we will at one moment hear the name of Peter called. And among Peter's rewards for his faithfulness will be the work that he did that day. And what will be attributed to his account will be those 3,000. But Andrew will have not only the 3,000, but the 3,000 plus one, because it is Andrew that brought Peter to Jesus Christ. And if it were not for Andrew, there never would have been the Peter. So we may not hear a lot about Andrew in scripture, but there's coming a day when we're going to hear his name and we will see him rewarded 3,000 plus one beyond his older brother, Peter. Turn to John chapter 1 as we see this interaction take place. John chapter 1. We'll start in verse 35. It says, Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now it's speaking of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is here with two of his disciples. It will become clear in the following verses that these disciples were Andrew and John. And so Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist. And to be a follower or a disciple of John the Baptist, you had to be pretty serious about your gig, you had to be pretty for real, pretty gnarly, because John the Baptist was pretty gnarly. And so Andrew, one of the followers of John the Baptist, realized that John the Baptist was not the end, but he was the one who was making straight the path for the Messiah. He would say over and over, when some of the Levites were sent from Jerusalem to question John the Baptist as to his identity, he would say, I am not the Messiah. The Messiah is yet to come. I am the one about whom Isaiah the prophet spoke of, making straight the Path for the Messiah, but I am not He. In fact, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the sandals of the Messiah, the one who is to come. And so these men, Andrew and John, who were disciples of John the Baptist, would be expecting the coming Messiah at any minute. Verse 36. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Here is their teacher, John the Baptist, at this moment in history saying, Behold, which means look, there he is, the Lamb of God, the one that takes away the sins of the world. Now, if you were a good Jew in that day, you knew exactly what that meant, the Lamb of God. You knew that for your sins, there had to be blood spilled on your behalf. You knew that as a Jew, your sins caused you to be guilty before God and God had wrath stored up against you. But to satisfy that wrath, there had to be a payment made that an innocent animal would be slain on your behalf and that would satisfy the wrath of God for a time until you would sin again and then you would have to spill the blood of another animal. And so every individual would have to spill the blood of an animal for the covering of their sins to satisfy the wrath of God, and also for the nation. There was once a year on the Day of Atonement the blood spilt to satisfy the wrath of God against the nation for one more year. But it would have to happen year in and year out, day in and day out, over and over again on the Temple Mount. Thousands upon thousands of gallons of blood spilt to pay the price for the sins of the Jews. They knew what it meant if someone were to say to them, Sin is costly. Because they would select from their herds the most precious animal they had there, the one that was spotless, without blemish, the finest and most valuable one, and that they would have to bring and slay. They knew what it meant, that sin was costly. And so in the heart of the Jew that day, when they heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who takes away not just satisfies the wrath of God, not just covers, but takes away the sins of the world. The heart of the Jew was overwhelmed. The heart of the Jew leapt for joy that the Messiah, the Deliverer of Israel had come and now there would be made for their sins once and for all a propitiation, a satisfaction of God's wrath on their behalf. And Andrew was there. In verse 37, And the two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and looked at them following and said to them, What do you want? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? Teacher, where are you going? Wherever you're at, that's where we want to be. And he said to them, Come, and you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with Jesus that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Andrew was the first of the disciples to follow Jesus. As Jesus began his earthly ministry, Andrew was the primary one, the initial one, to hear the call and to follow after him. And the first thing that he did was bring someone else to Jesus Christ. He didn't sit on it. He didn't just say, well, this is good for me and not good for them. He immediately brought someone else to Jesus Christ and it was his brother Peter who went on to be the primary leader in the early church. Herbert Lockyer In his book, All the Apostles of the Bible, writes about this event. And it reads like this. Have you ever tried to imagine the gratitude of Andrew's heart and the glow on his face when at Pentecost he stood at his brother's side and heard him charge the crowd before him with the crime of history? and then witness the mighty effect of such Holy Ghost preaching as thousands turned to Christ in penitence. I can hear Andrew say within himself as he gazed upon a sea of upturned faces, listening to Peter's Pentecostal sermon with rapt attention, Peter, my dear brother, how thrilled I am that I led you to Christ that day almost three years ago. Little did I realize then How wonderfully God was going to use you. Bless God for constraining me to urge you to accept the Messiah as I did. And all the fruit that would abound in the coming years as the church was birthed to the account of Peter would also be credited to the account of Andrew. He himself having led Peter to the Lord. Both Peter and Andrew, brothers, these fishermen who grew up together, had evangelistic hearts. They both wanted to see people one to the Lord, but they went about it differently. Peter went about it as his personality allowed. He was the big mouth preacher. He was the one who let the multitudes know, and glory to God for that. Andrew was a little different. Andrew was quiet. Andrew did it one by one. Where Peter was bold and loud and self-asserting, Andrew was quiet and humble unassuming and other centered but well, what is interesting is even though it was Andrew who led Peter to the Lord Peter would soon surpass Andrew in access to the Lord Peter becoming one of that inner circle of three Peter James and John think about it Andrew leads him to the Lord and just in the coming months Peter would surpass Andrew in the access that was afforded to him to the Lord and he would surpass Andrew in the authority given him by the Lord and he would surpass Andrew in the position given him by the Lord within the band of the disciples and within the early church. Peter would ascend to a higher level of leadership than Andrew. But here is what is wonderful about Andrew. We never hear him in all the Bible complain about it. We never hear him say, wait a minute. It's not fair, Lord. I was first. I was the first one that followed you. I was following John the Baptist. Peter wasn't. Peter was just out fishing and eating and having fun. And here I am with this gnarly guy in the wilderness wearing camel hair and eating weird stuff with John the Baptist. And I followed Jesus first. I went to your house with you that day, Lord. But now Peter is the one who ascends to this position of leadership. We never hear Andrew complain. We never hear him grumble. He was the apostle who was satisfied to let others be greater than himself. That is a true humility. That is a true man of God. That is a true kingdom mindset. You know who is like this in our community here? Pastor Ricky Ryan at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara. He is like this. He is a man who is truly humble in the real sense of the word. He is a man who really honestly has a kingdom mindset. He wants to see God's kingdom expand. It doesn't have to come through his hands. It could come through the hands of others. He's willing to promote others beyond himself. He's willing to decrease that others might increase. He just wants to see people one to Christ. It doesn't matter if it happens through him or someone else. All the glory is to God. He's the kind of man that Andrew was. Andrew understood what Jesus taught, that the first shall be last and the greatest among you shall be the least. He understood that those that God raises to a position of leadership are under the sovereign hand of God. That is, we've been learning the last couple of weeks, it's God's sovereignty. And God uses the foolish things of the world. So Pete got ahead. But know this, though Andrew was quiet and humble And different from Peter. Men and women who are like him. Who serve faithfully in the church and outside the church. In the background. Never drawing attention to themselves. Never having to stand behind a pulpit. Just quietly loving people in the name of Jesus. Their impact on the kingdom of God is just as big as the one who stands in front of thousands. It's different But it's God-given, it's just as important, and it impacts history every bit as much. God sees to it, God works that way. I'm going to read to you from John MacArthur's phenomenal book called Twelve Ordinary Men. And here we hear the story of a man named Edward Kimball. He writes, Few have ever heard of Edward Kimball. His name is a footnote in the annals of church history. But he was a Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody to Christ. He went one afternoon to the Boston shoe store where the 19-year-old Moody was working, cornered him in the stockroom, and introduced him to Christ. Kimball was the antithesis of a bold evangelist. He was timid and soft-spoken. He went to that shoe shop frightened, trembling, and unsure of whether he had enough courage to confront this young man with the gospel. At the time, Moody was crude and obviously illiterate. But the thought of speaking to him about Christ had Kimball trembling in his boots. Kimball recalled the incident years later. Moody had begun to attend a Sunday school class, and it was obvious that Moody was totally untaught and ignorant about the Bible. Kimball said later, I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. I started downtown to Holton Shoe Store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to just go then, or whether I ought to go just then during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy. That when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was. And when they learned, might taunt Moody and ask if I was trying to make a good boy out of him. When I was pondering over it all, I passed right by the store without noticing it. Then, when I found I had gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. John MacArthur continues, Kimball found Moody working in the stockroom, wrapping and shelving shoes. Kimball said he spoke with limping words. He later said, I never could remember just what I did say. Something about Christ and his love. That was all. (laughs) He admitted it was a weak appeal. But Moody, then and there, gave his heart to Christ. Of course, D.L. Moody was used mightily by the Lord as an evangelist both in America and in England. His ministry made a massive impact on both sides of the Atlantic, spanning most of the second half of the 19th century. Tens of thousands testified that they came to Christ because of his ministry. Among Moody's converts were people like C.T. Studd, the great pioneer missionary, and Wilbur Chapman, who himself became a well-known evangelist. Moody subsequently founded Moody Bible Institute, where thousands of missionaries, evangelists, and other Christian workers have all been trained during the past century and sent out into the world. All of that began when one man was faithful to introduce another individual to Christ. At the Bema seat of Christ, at the judgment seat, where the Christians are given their reward— D.L. Moody will be there and he will be credited with a conversion of tens of thousands. But then will come Kimball who will be credited with a conversion of tens of thousands plus one. It is not the man up front with the loudest voice or the farthest reach that makes the greatest impact in the kingdom of God. It is the individual who is submitted and obedient to the will of God and bold to share the truth of God that impacts history. And this is the way, the only way, that the world is going to be one for Jesus Christ is through one-on-one evangelism if we, this body here, purposes in our hearts to each be a person who would lead others to Jesus Christ. This is the only way for evangelism to succeed. For it to succeed in our world, it must succeed in your individual life. I read recently that the evangelical church in America has spent over $50 billion over $50 billion in the last 50 years on evangelism. 50 years, $50 billion, and has grown less than 2% in that time. What does that tell me? A lot of things. But one thing is, we can't throw money at evangelism. No matter how much money we have, no matter how much money you give, no matter how many big events we have, those things will not win the world to Jesus Christ. Only you can win the world to Jesus Christ. It happens through the lives of individuals. Let's take a poll. Three questions. Every single Christian in here will respond to one of these. How many of you here went to a large-scale event such as a Billy Graham crusade or a Harvest crusade, and that is where you first heard the gospel and were brought to the Lord? Raise your hand. One. There's over 500 people in this room. One man out of 500 was led to the Lord through a large-scale evangelistic crusade. Interesting. Praise God for that. Worth every dime. Worth everything that ever went into it. Praise God for one soul worth every single bit of it. How many of you, you heard the gospel for the first time in a church? That's where it happened. You walked in the church, you heard the gospel for the first time, gave your life there. Raise your hand. About 30 of you. How many of you came to the Lord because another individual in your life told you about Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. Oh, about 469 of you. Look at that. Think about that for a minute. Think about it for a minute. Stop and think about it. The vast majority of people in this room who are Christians were one to the Lord through the faithful witness of another person. Now what are you going to do with that? If you have any integrity, any sense of the kingdom of God, you will reciprocate. You will respond by sharing with others likewise. Just as someone had the love and compassion and the guts to share with you, you will share with others. We have just proven in this room that that is the only way that this world will be one to Jesus Christ is through your individual witness you me we are the key and so now we have to take some of the mystery and fear out of sharing jesus now that we know we all must do it if the world is to be one We will take the mystery and fear out of evangelism, out of personal evangelism, out of one-on-one sharing Jesus by realizing that sharing Jesus is natural, number one. Sharing Jesus is right, number two. And number three, sharing Jesus is easy. I will prove it to you today. Sharing Jesus in a one-on-one context is natural, right, and easy. Number one. It is natural in that it is the natural outflow of being with Jesus. We saw and we've spoken about for the last several weeks that when Jesus called the disciples, He called the disciples to be... We've read the verse for the last five weeks, every single week. Jesus called the disciples to be with Him. Oh, Lord, bless them. Jesus called the disciples to be... Amen. And to, I'll help you out here, and to preach and to have authority over evil. And I shared with you the first week we began to, excuse me, talk about discipleship, that preaching Jesus is the natural outflow of being with Jesus. It's nothing we have to strive to do. It ought not to be a burden, but preaching Jesus is the natural outflow of being with Jesus. Look again in John chapter 1, verse 38. And Jesus turned and looked at Andrew and John and said, what do you guys want? And they said, Rabbi, we want to be where you are. Verse 39, He said to them, then come with Me. And they came therefore and saw where He was staying and they stayed with Him that day. It was after Andrew spent time with Jesus that he ran out to tell his brother, we have found the Messiah. Jesus didn't have to tell him to do it. Nobody had to coerce him to do it. There wasn't a pastor beating him on the head to do it. Nobody gave him a manual. Nobody gave him a 20-step program. Just he had been with the Lord and said, I've got to tell somebody I love about Jesus. That is why we emphasize here week in and week out that if you are a Christian, it is imperative that you read your Bible and pray every single day. Read your Bible and pray every single day. Say it again. Read your Bible and pray every single day. Because that is a primary way that we draw near to the Lord that we spend time with Him in those quiet times, those times of devotion and Bible study and in prayer. And two things will happen when we do not neglect those times when we engage in that intimacy with the Lord. Number one, you will be absolutely convinced as to His identity. You spend time in the Word of God and you spend time in prayer and you will be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world and that He is faithful in all that He has promised. Amen? Secondly, you spend that time with the Lord, you be diligent to just get up and do it, whether you feel like it or not, and you will fall in love with Him. You will fall in love with Him. When did you fall in love with your spouse if you're married? Some people say, it was love at first sight. Praise the Lord for you. Hooray, amen. But others of us, we had to spend a little time with a person. And as we spent time with them, we fell in love with them. And I hope that your marriage is like mine, that the more time you spend now, the more you fall in love with your spouse. And so it is with the Lord. The more time we spend with Him, the more we fall in love with Him. And when we are in love for Him, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Peter, James, John, Andrew, and the rest were being persecuted in the book of Acts. And the religious leaders, at the threat of death, at the threat of imprisonment, said, you stop talking about Jesus. And they said, Whether it's right for us to listen to God or you, you can figure that out for yourself. But we cannot stop talking about what we have seen and what we have heard. You need to see God daily in your life, in prayer, and in the pages of the Bible. Amen. Our lights went out. We'll continue to preach in darkness. So, if you have trouble sharing in a one-on-one context, as I do, as many of us often do, the best remedy for that is to spend more time with the Lord. And it will be the natural outflow of your life. Cease striving and know that He is God. You don't have to strive and feel condemned this morning. Oh, You just do what you ought to do and draw near to the Lord. And the natural outflow will be sharing with others. Secondly, sharing is easy because it is right. It is right because of love, the love of God, and the love of others. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. I, gee, with that, How can it be any clearer? The Lord says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Not if you want brownie points, not if you want to impress anybody at church. Just if you love me, you're going to obey my commandments. And the last command that he has given to all of his disciples before he ascended was go into the world and make disciples. And as I said before, if we are loving him, it is easy and it is natural and it is not burdensome. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Man, if the commands of God feel to be a burden in your life, there's something wrong. They're not designed to be a burden. We have been freed and whom the Son has set free is free indeed. We are no longer under the law, but we are now free to obey having been set free from the power of sin and the power of death. And his commandments are not burdensome, but a joy to us. Here's what's burdensome. This is what's burdensome. What's burdensome to me is missing evangelistic opportunities. That's what weighs me down. I don't get weighed down with the fact that God has commanded me to share his love with others. That doesn't burden me. But when I miss out on an opportunity, man, that weighs heavily on me. Man, that burdens me. Uh, many of you know that my family uh, has a surfboard business. And for years, I've made surfboards for the business. And I took to the habit of writing scripture on the bottom of the boards. You know, and I would just write verses. And it was really fun when I knew people. I would write a, a verse on there that I would pray would pertain to their life and minister to them. And I, I remember one time, a guy here in Carpinteria, I wrote on his board, um, 1 Peter five seven, which says... Uh, what's it say? It says... Uh, something along the lines of be anxious for nothing. Oh, be anxious for nothing because he cares for you, right? 1 Peter 5.7. Be anxious for nothing. He cares for you. And so the guy got the surfboard and I saw him out at Rincon a few weeks later and he paddles up to me. He's all, do I look stressed out? What's the deal? I said, no, man. But I would write scriptures on the boards. And one of the guys that worked for us came in one day and I had just shaped a surfboard for somebody and he was looking at it and he saw the scripture on the bottom. And he said, wow, you're always writing this Bible stuff on, on the surfboards, huh? And w- what's up with that? And I said, wow, well, I'm, I'm just hoping it'll have an effect on people. And he looks at me right in the eyes and he goes, it's really having an effect on me. This guy's not a Christian. And what did I do, great evangelist that I am? I went, uh, uh, yeah, you should check it out. I totally chumped it. I got scared. I got nervous. I got afraid and said, "Uh, yeah, you should check it out. and walked away. That burdened me. For years, that burdened me. I mean, every time I saw the guy, I thought about it. That was a burden to me. See, obedience is not a burden. Disobedience is a burden. But God is faithful, who will restore the years that the locust has eaten. And this year I had the opportunity to preach at the courthouse in Santa Barbara. And as I gave the gospel invitation on Easter, who came forward but that very guy? God is so good. God is so good. So his commands are not burdensome. It's disobedience that is burdensome. So we do it for the love of God because he tells us to and has enabled us to do so. But we do it one-on-one evangelism for the love of people. Think about it, Christians. Reason with me for a moment. If we really believe what we say we believe, that Jesus is the only way to heaven as he himself claimed, that nobody will get to heaven except through him, If we honestly believe that, and we don't share that, how can we say we love? If we honestly believe that apart from Jesus Christ, people are lost for eternity, if we really believe that, and we don't share it with everybody that the Lord allows us to, how can we say we have love? I oftentimes in my own personal evangelism have had people say to me, okay, I can see you are sincere about what you believe and that is wonderful for you, but quit shoving it down my throat. And I reason with them. I say, listen, man, I'm not shoving it down your throat because God loves me. I love you. And if I really believe this to be true and did not desperately try to tell you wouldn't I be the most despicable human in all the world? If I really believe that you are lost apart from Jesus Christ and I did not tell you that, wouldn't I be a despicable person? And they say, well, yeah, I see your point. And then I shove it down their throat one more time. (laughs) We do it because of the love of God and because of the love of people. Now, I just want you to notice that the first one that Andrew went to was a family member. And those are the hardest people to share with. Why? Because we love them so desperately that we are afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of being put out. We're afraid of injuring the relationship. We love them so desperately, we're afraid of offending them. But the logic follows that if we really love them that much, We need to be willing to risk the relationship to tell them about the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. It is the hardest thing in the world to share with your own family. I know that. It is so hard. But Andrew did it. Don't give up on it. I know there are many in this room who are burdened for family members. Don't give up on it. Love enough to be willing to take the risk to tell them the truth. Evangelism has to start with those that you love the most that are nearest to you. This helps. This is the best definition of an evangelist I've ever heard. Listen, an evangelist is a beggar telling another hungry beggar where to get bread. Think about it. A beggar telling another hungry beggar where to get bread. That is an evangelist. We ought not to think ourselves better than them. The only difference between our sin and their sin is ours has been forgiven. We are spiritual beggars who have found the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. And we simply tell them, listen, your condition is my condition but I have found the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And that we can easily do with gentleness and reverence. And that ought to be the attitude that we display in personal evangelism. And that makes it easier to take it to the ones that you love most when you realize that you and they are spiritually bankrupt before God, but you have been made alive, nourished on Jesus Christ, the bread of life. What did Jesus say to the man who was possessed by a legion of demons after having set him free? He said in Mark chapter 5, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. He said to the man who was delivered, go home now, tell your people, the people in your life, the people that you love, the people that God has sovereignly placed around you, simply tell them the great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that is the most powerful evangelism is when you simply tell people what God has done for you. They cannot argue with that. They can try to argue theology all day long. They can try to argue this, that, and the other. But when you simply say, hey dude, I was this and now I've been saved and God has brought me here. There is no arguing. There is no arguing with that. And then you say, and it is Jesus who had mercy on me. There is power in every single testimony in this room. Andrew didn't know anything when he went and spoke to Peter. He'd just been with Jesus for a couple hours and he just went and said, dude, dude, we found the Messiah. That's all he could say. You don't have to take a class. You don't got to know much. Just know you've been saved and just tell people, dude, I've been saved and you need the Lord. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. Personal evangelism is natural It's right. And lastly, it is easy. And it is easy because we have a great helper. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Oh, let there be light. The lights came back on. Praise the Lord. That's pretty cool. It is easy because we have a great helper. John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus speaking. Right after he said, by the way, in verse 15 of John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Next breath he said. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. Jesus said, You will obey Me, and when I go, I will give you a Helper that will be with you forever, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And now He says in verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things. And will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he says concerning the Helper, the Holy Spirit, in John 16, starting in verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Listen to how radical that is. Listen how powerful, how wonderful the help of the Holy Spirit must be that Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I leave. It is to your advantage that God incarnate goes away because if I ascend to the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit comes. How valuable it must be because look what He does in verse 8. And He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you no longer behold me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged so we have been given a helper in our evangelism and he is the third person of the trinity the holy spirit And one of his jobs is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What does it mean here to convict? It means to present or expose facts, to, listen, to convince of the truth. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to convince people of the truth concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now hasn't there just been a burden lifted off your shoulders? It is not your job to convince it is a job of the Holy Spirit. It is our job to deliver the message. But the Holy Spirit does the work in the hearts of men and women. And it's a tag team, cooperative effort. Turn back to John 15, and we see that pictured in verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, "...when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father..." He will bear witness of me. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. And, verse 27, You will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So there is a tag-team cooperative effort between you, the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God. We deliver the message. We stand up for the truth. We let people know the good news and it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who has to do the work in the hearts of men and women. Now, one of the reasons that uh, it's so wonderful is because we have such a simple message to deliver. There is no message in all the world that is simpler than the gospel message. Do you see your sweet little handout in your bulletin today? You see this little handout? I call these the four R's. This is my evangelistic method, whether I'm preaching in front of 5,000 people or talking to one person on the street. I always remember the four R's that I'm going to teach you now. Take notes, be mindful of this. We gave it to you so you could take it home and memorize it. The four R's. Why do we need the four R's? Because they're easy to remember and the whole of the gospel is contained in them. When I go to share with someone one-on-one, I get nervous I get afraid. My hands get sweaty and I get all crazy and I begin to forget the gospel. Just like that guy who said, whoa, the, the Bible verses on the surfboards are really impacting me. I said, yeah, check it out, dude. and ran away. I get totally cheesy and nervous and there have been times where I've gone to share and I can't remember where to start with the gospel. Someone could come up to me and say, Britt, tell me how to be saved, please. And I'd go, "Uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, Something about Jesus. I just get, I cheese out. Put me in front of thousands and I'll pound on your head with the gospel for an hour straight. But put me in the one-on-one context and I'm like a little girl, my knees buckle. And so I've had to work with the four R's. And you, you can, you, so you watch me sometime when I'm sharing with someone. I'll have these big long fingers up so I could remember the four R's. And so I go, okay, okay. They want to know how to get saved. The first one, recognize. The first R, you've got to recognize that you are a sinner. Now, what I always do is attach Bible verses to each one of these R's. I never say to them, Romans so-and-so says. I will never say to them, Romans 3.23. Because if they're unfamiliar with the Bible, you just tripped them out right there. <laughs> Romans? Where's the... Who? Is that a football team? What would you talk, Romans. 3.23, man, it's 5 o'clock. You just leave that part out. It's not important yet. But I'll just paraphrase the verse to them. So I'll tell them, I'll have my finger and I'll go, Amen. Hey man, you've got to recognize that you are a sinner. The Bible says, and there comes authority. The moment you say the Bible says, whether they receive it or not, in the spiritual realm now, there's authority. The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then they start to get nervous. What do you mean I'm a sinner? Yeah, you're a sinner, but wait, there's another R. The next R is realize. You've got to realize that Jesus died upon the cross to pay the price for your sins. And I will attach a verse to that also. I attach to that Romans 5.8, and I'll tell them that God demonstrated His love toward you and that while you were yet a sinner, He gave His Son, Christ Jesus, to die for you. There's power in the Word of God. You always got to put that out there. So I told them to recognize that they're a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Realize that Jesus died upon the cross for those sins. That God demonstrated His love by giving His Son for them. And then I tell them this one: oh, don't forget this one. I tell them repent. This is where you lose some of them. I tell them, you got to repent of your sins. You got to be willing to turn away from your sins and turn toward God. And I quote for them Acts chapter 3, verse 19, where Peter said to the nation of Israel, Repent therefore and turn to God, that your sins may be wiped away and times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. And then I just gave them the last, last R. All you have to do now is receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. In John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To as many as received him, to them has been given the right to be called children of God. Now I just gave it to you in two minutes with elaboration. Any one of you can memorize those four R's and every one of you can memorize four verses and give the gospel effectively, the whole of it, in less than two minutes. My son Isaiah is three years old. Friday night, my wife read to him, um ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 and by saturday morning he had it memorized he's only three just last night my friends were in my car and i said to my son isaiah who's three isaiah what does ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 say and he said children obey your parents (laughs) in the lord for this is right It only took my son a little bit of time to memorize one verse, and he's only three. Everyone here can memorize those four verses, attach them to the four R's, and share Jesus Christ. Every one of you can do that by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And the most amazing thing is the moment that message falls from your lips, there is spiritual power. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation and as soon as you faithfully deliver the whole gospel you can walk away and hear the Lord say well done good and faithful servant. The rest is up to the Holy Spirit. He may call you to do it again and again and again and again and again and as long as he calls you to give the gospel message you do it and he will be faithful to do his part. One last verse 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn there. And we'll end right here. 2 Corinthians 4. This is the most important part of the entire message. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Starting verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Listen to me, Christians. Verse 4. In whose case the God of this world, lowercase g, who is that a description of? Satan. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That ought to make you unbearably angry. That when we share the gospel and it's denied, it is because the God of this world, lowercase g, Satan, has blinded the minds of the recipient that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Friends, if that does not force you to prayer, then nothing will. There are members of my family, my friends, My co-workers, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your loved ones, who at this moment are in danger of eternity separated from God because the God of this world has blinded their minds. How do we destroy that work of the enemy? We pray. That is how we destroy the work of the enemy is with the spiritual authority given to Christians to stand against him. We stand in the name of Jesus Christ and we pray for the salvation of men and women. And the Holy Spirit of God responds and the enemy is defeated. And then when we share the word of God, the sword of God, the gospel, all the power is unleashed. It has been said, do not speak to a man about Jesus until you speak to Jesus about the man. And men and women are set free 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that people are held captive by the enemy to do his will against their wills and they are set free as we pray for them and unleash the power of the gospel into their ears. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God and salvation is by grace through faith alone. Everybody in this room is called to be an evangelist and an intercessor. Some are gifted for those things. Some move in those gifts. Some are more passionate about them, but every Christian has the responsibility and the privilege to evangelize to share the good news and to stand in the gap between life and death and plead the blood of Jesus Christ over men and women for their salvation and so we're going to do that right now as a congregation right now we're just going to begin to pray when we pray corporately you need to pray out loud so people can hear you in your biggest voice because we are green in prayer don't shuffle nobody's going anywhere Because we are agreeing in prayer. So people need to hear you. There is power when Christians agree in prayer. And so as people are praying, we will hear yeses and amens and do it, Lord. But you've got to pray loud so people hear you. And right now we're going to intercede for the lost. If there's a name of a person, you'll see that on the sheet we gave you. It says write the name of the person you will commit to pray for right there. And then pray for him or her every day until you share the gospel with them. I want you to just say that person's name out loud. I want you to intercede on behalf of them right here. I want us to intercede for our families and then our community and then the nations. Maybe God has given you a passion for the nation. Just say, God, have mercy on such and such nation. God, have mercy on whatever nation that is. And God, have mercy on this person. And God, please save so-and-so. And God, please move at that place. And we're just gonna intercede and stand in the gap right now. This is why we're Christians who are still alive. This is why we're here. So let's do that, okay? Let's pray.